Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where we share our latest insights on recent developments in politics and policy in the UK, Europe, and worldwide. Hello, and welcome to this GC podcast on this week's EU statement of its ambitions for its future relationship with the new presidential administration in the United States. My name is Stephen Adams. I'm Senior Director in the GC office in London, and joining me on this podcast is Tom White, the Director of GC's Brussels office, and Miranda Lutz, who's joining us from our office in DC. Uh, Tom, let's start with you. Just give us a little bit of context for uh, this statement of um, potential future policy alignment. Why now? I mean, apart from obviously the fact that the US has just elected a president, why now? And give us the headline messages. Well, in, in some ways, to take your timing question first, I think it is a bit of an unusual timing when you look at this from outside Europe, because you think, um, you know, Joe Biden is not yet the president of the United States. We don't yet know who in the administration will be responsible for relationships with Europe. Um, and at the same time, we all know that any new president is going to be much more concerned during the transition and their early stages of office with domestic politics. Um, and I think the reason why the EU has in some senses jumped the gun a bit in getting something down on paper about what it wants from the administration is because of the EU's own processes and politics of how it takes decisions. And the EU knows that if it wants to have, or I would say the commission knows, that if it wants there to be a consistent clear line in time, even for the EU-US summit at some point during the Portuguese presidency, and certainly in time for the inauguration, then it has to start the work now of corralling the member states and ironing out differences of opinion. Um, I think the other reason for the early issuance of the paper is also just the sort of genuine sense of relief and optimism that is permeating not just Brussels, but European capitals. And what is potentially a, a slightly naive hope that we are going back to the type of multilateralism that we saw during the Clinton or Obama administrations, and um, probably not as quite as far as expecting the same ambitions around economic partnership that we saw in the Bush years, but certainly an attempt to pretend that the last four years um, were an aberration. Um, I think we're this is the, uh, to... the geopolitical equivalent of breaking uncontrollably into song. So. So, so, so tell us what's in the song then. Well, in the song, I think there are two things I would say about what's in the song. Um, of course, the main headlines are what you would expect in this kind of paper, talking about climate change, talking about trade, talking about security and defence, and talking about common values. Um, that's pretty much the um, bingo that you play in any sort of foreign policy strategy. But what is interesting about the content this time, I would say are two things. One is that the um, occasionally purple prose about shared values and um, collaboration between the two powers does not really translate into very tough, ambitious areas of policy. There are some uh, statements about trying to find common ground on sustainable finance for um, regulating investment in green or um, environmentally less uh, friendly products. There is talk of creating a dialogue around technology partnerships, but it's it's relatively modest in some of the substance. And I would say the probably the second thing about the substance that is interesting is that it is not just about the bilateral relationship. And at the strategic level, there is clearly a hope that 
the Biden administration will not only want to repair relationships and re-engage with multilateral institutions, but will also join with the EU in setting out a shared agenda. And that is very much in the title. It's about a new partnership for global change. Um, and although that does not necessarily translate into very detailed Bretton Woods style agendas, there is clearly a hope that there is more to it than just a reset of the bilateral relationship, but also potential to use that relationship to deal with other powers. And mm. most obvious in that is, is of course, China. Yeah, so we'll, we'll come back to that question of China, which is the was the elephant in the room in this in this document, as in so much of uh, international geopolitics. But I mean, one observation I've heard you make over the last day or so in discussing this paper is, is the observation that it's it's based on perhaps a particular view of transatlantic history and a particular view of the transatlantic relationship with respect to Europe's, wider Europe's place in it. Just say a bit more about that. Well, I think we often talk, and I know Miranda will, will talk a bit about this, when we look at the US about um, you know, the very real um, interests that Donald Trump's administration was reflecting, and that was obviously reflected in his very strong electoral result um, coming second. Um, but there, there's a version of that in, in the EU, that there were um, member states and there were interests and there are political parties that very much um, supported D Donald Trump's agenda um, and were interested in uh, particularly a more assertive approach towards China, um, but also um, more caution on um, environmental policies and higher levels of defense spending and restoring NATO. And so although the perception in uh, the Berlin Mall and also I think in Paris and in Berlin is that what really matters is that we have an administration committed to working on multilateralism, there are others who will be a bit concerned about whether the real uh, substance of that engagement is going to be right. And, you know, most obviously, you look at uh, the reception that uh, some of Trump's ideas had in, in Poland and in um, other parts of Eastern Europe, particularly around increasing defence spending, new military bases, there'll be those who are quite concerned if that's now not going to happen. Um, and I think that that is, is quite striking in both the style of the paper and when we start to think about how that paper is going to be received, because, of course, the first audience for this is not the, um, the United States, it's not China. The first audience is the member states deciding whether to give the commission the kind of license to operate that it's asking for. Yeah. And I mean, you make the point that two big plays in the paper are uh, the projection of a new level of transatlantic partnership on climate change. Obviously, one of the things that is expected of the Biden administration, and I'll ask Miranda about this in a second, is, is that it, it will very materially change the US's external posture on climate change, something that's very welcome in Brussels. You also make the point that there is an ambition here for a level of cooperation on public health. And again, I think we can see some obvious potential ways in which that happens. But do you think there's a risk that this paper downplays some of the tensions in the relationship that are in fact likely to endure perhaps on technology or on trade? I, I think it does play down some of those tensions and that is um, in part because there's been a sense that over the last few years we've focused perhaps a bit too much on what divides us and not on what unites us and so to try to downplay that but also because as soon as you start to look at some of the more contentious questions like um, data protection or 
privacy or cooperation on security in the Middle East, you start to get quite a lot of backlash within the EU to the very idea of working with America. And if we think about some of the drivers of areas of tension on privacy, they will not be very interested in whether um, the, the US is recommits to the WHO or the WTO. What they'll be concerned about is whether Europe is prepared to soften its restrictions on um, accessing data, pri private data and commercialising it. Um, and so I think the Commission is mindful of the fact that it's got a, a delicate stakeholder balance at home to manage as well. Um, but, I, but I think the main idea is to try and focus on where you can generate some momentum in the, in the partnership where you can announce some agreements next year that help you then find new opportunities. And that's why, you know, if we think about one of the most contentious areas of uh, trade and standards around technology, there's an attempt to create a particular technology council, which I think we should not have very high expectations of, um, but is an attempt essentially to try and quarantine some of the issues so that political energy can also be spent on, um, on a positive agenda. Okay, so, uh, I mean, Tom, as you say, this is the first audience for this paper is the European Council. It, it will, of course, nevertheless, be read in the United States, and it is intended to be read in the United States and in the Biden administration. Miranda, if this is the European Commission or the European institutions bursting uncontrollably Julie Andrews-like into song at the prospect of a Biden administration, do you think it reads politics in the US right? And do you think it reads the instincts of the Biden administration right? I think at a high level, it does. This You can see the themes throughout the paper that Biden has echoed on the campaign trail of rebuilding American leadership abroad, strengthening partnerships with our allies, especially in Europe. And so at a high level, this certainly will have resonance in the, in the US. And with Tony Blinken at the helm of the State Department, he is very much a coalitions man and has a long history of trying to work on a multilateral front in the US government. I think the timing, as Tom alluded to, is, uh, is odd. Um, the US is looking at a, a funding deadline to government spending ends on December 11th, so they need to pass a government funding bill. There's still questions about a COVID stimulus bill. There's still questions about the election, and each political party is both um, very much zeroed in on two runoff elections in Georgia. So the U.S. is very much occupied with domestic political concerns right now, and there's not really the bandwidth within the current government or the, the Biden administration to put a lot of attention towards responding to this type of agenda. That doesn't mean that there's not going to be interest, again, at a high level, and we can get into some of the nuances of where I see that there's opportunity and where there might be pushback. Um, but this, the timing of this, um, at least from the U.S. perspective, is is it's not landing as much as um, you know. I think that Euro the Europeans would hope. Okay, but so let's assume that this is in fact uh, the the first move in what's going to be an evolving dialogue and an evolving ballet. It's signaled where the where the E would like to go, where the Commission would like to go. To say a little bit more about what you just suggested there about how some of these individual ideas might end up getting or failing to get traction. Certainly, and so Tom discussed the Trade and Technology Council, and I think that's perhaps one of the most interesting components of the agenda. Um, there is strong desire within both um, the Democratic and Republican parties to identify ways to counter China. I think that Trump's unilateral approach um, 
you have we have not seen many policy wins um, that we've imposed Section 301 tariffs on what seems like every Ch uh, Chinese good. And um, China's still doing uh, very well. They have managed to show that they can shoulder that burden. And so where does the U.S. go from here? And that's where you get into Biden's wanting to build a coalition around China. And you have to, when you discuss that, you have to look at the technology aspect as well as the trade aspect. So I think that that message on the council is correct. And I think it's correct to carve out those two issues from a broader trade negotiation. You're not going to get a, a TTIP renewal or anything like that. There's just not the domestic political desire, I think, on either side of the Atlantic for that. Um, and so looking at trade and technology on the trade aspect, we get into what uh, the paper has delightfully called trade irritants um, and thinking of the Airbus Boeing dispute as well as the Section 232 sanctions. And I think in the US, those 232 sanctions on steel and aluminum will be a little bit stickier than um, folks in Europe might hope for. Um, there's a lot of domestic constituencies in the US that are very supportive of that, mainly the labor unions. And so Biden will struggle to lift those, even though I think that, you know, personally, he would have a desire to not see those being imposed on Europe. Um, but he will have to move with extreme delicacy on that front. And it also sounds like he's reluctant to, at least in an initial step, to lift tariffs on China, which does mean that presumably we're going to see the EU and the US continuing to take slightly different approaches to China, even if both sides to some degree would like to see a more aligned strategy. Yes, I, I very much agree. I think that the Section 301 sanctions will likely be in place um, two years or so, um, you know, middle of the administration. That's when I could foresee um, Biden potentially having more bandwidth to deal with this um, or to deal with China. And um, so much of what the U.S. approach towards Section 301s will just be what is President Xi willing to concede or give up? What could Biden package as a win politically in the U.S. that will allow him and give him the justification that he needs political cover to lift those sanctions? Um, and then if you look at the technology issues, again, there's um, a lot of desire to be aligned on this um, for cross-border data flows, but you get it gets really tricky really quickly because the U.S. doesn't have its own house in order. We don't have a national data privacy law, um, and there's certainly a desire from Democrats to enact that. And so there's uh, going to be some tension there for you know dealing about technology standards and privacy and regulation when the U.S. doesn't have their own policy on solid footing, or at least not as solid footing as the EU does with GDPR. So there's already going to be tensions there as well. Tom, if we, I mean, one of one one of the one of the implicit views, I guess, in the paper is that this is we're going to see something of a reset in American politics to something that, in some ways, resembles the status quo ante. Um, but of course, the EU itself has evolved in some of its geopolitical and geostrategic postures and assumptions in the last four years. And I, I guess I'm thinking here particularly of the, the development of the notion of strategic autonomy. This paper itself talks about a necessary level of self-reliance uh, of the EU uh, you know, in areas like technology. I mean, to what extent does, do the ambitions in this paper actually have to be tested against some of the EU's own 
evolved policy over the last four years and the extent to which that may in fact act as a check on forms of collaboration with the US? I think it certainly does mean that there is no return to, um, when I was being a bit glib earlier, saying that it was an attempt to rediscover the relationships of the Obama or Clinton years. But um, I think although there is certainly a, um, a very strong Atlanticist um, mindset among many of the member states, and we should never underestimate how strong that is in Germany in particular, um, ultimately the balance of power and the policy priorities have shifted in the EU since 2016, partly because of um, the UK's departure, which was always a very strong advocate of transatlantic collaboration, um, sometimes described as um, America's Trojan horse even. Um, there are other countries that play that role to an extent, such as Ireland, but it's a much, a much weaker block than it used to be. Um, and at the same time, you have a much stronger consensus about the EU's need for power and how its single market can be a source of that power. It's most strongly articulated by France, but it's also brought in support from um, Italy, from uh, Germany, from the Netherlands, from, from a wide range of member states. And so actually in the aftermath of the paper coming out, we've already seen um, Joseph Borrell, the EU's high representative for foreign policy, emphasised that this does not mean um, any sort of rowing back on the ideas of strategic autonomy. It does not mean that um, EU member states should uh, soften some of the commitments they've made recently to spend more on defence, because ultimately, and I think this is, if you wanted to sum it up as a as a consensus view in Brussels, that um, even if you have a, a window now with a a more uh, friendly administration. It's no guarantee that the one after that will be the case. And you, you have to think longer term and that ultimately the best foundation for a strong partnership with America is for Europe itself to be stronger. Now, all of that is um, relatively straightforward to agree with. Um, however, there is then the question of how that turns into particular policies, particular regulations and particular spending priorities. And that's where I think we have to remember that the rest of this policy cycle contains as much risk as opportunity as it does for um, international businesses in particular. Well, say, uh, say a bit more about that question. I mean, how should, how, how should businesses interpret uh, this, you know, the, the, um, uh, the ambitions of this paper? I mean, perhaps obviously large transatlantic multinationals, but also firms who are exposed to the kinds of things that Miranda described euphemistically, or rather the paper describes euphemistically as trade irritants with the US? Um, well, I think you have to look at it very, very much case by case. Um, if we take, for example, the question of um, climate change and what does it mean for the EU to be trying to work more with the US in that area? Well, for those American businesses that had already unilaterally committed to um, operate in line with the Paris Agreement, actually it's going to be quite welcome. Um, whereas if you were sort of somehow um, you know, following in the um, position of, of the government, then it will be a bit more uncertainty ahead about how, how the governments will respond to that. Um, I think that if you're very much exposed to the questions of tariffs, so the sectors that Miranda was talking about earlier, then you won't expect an immediate lifting of those tariffs, but you might think that there is less chance of new ones being introduced. And of course, this comes at a very important time while both 
the EU and the US are considering how to follow through on the WTO rulings about Boeing and Airbus and how to retaliate on, on subsidies. And you might hope that there will be less of a ratcheting up on both sides as a consequence of this, this development. Um, but overall, I think you would still be expecting there to be sources of tension, but a hope that they will be those tensions and any interventions will be done in a more sort of predictable and um, transparent way. Um, but it, it means that some of the questions the EU is looking at for um, investing in its own competitors to US tech companies on in areas like cloud computing or payments, that those are not going away anytime soon. Um, some of the ideas about regulating industrial data and um, enabling perhaps greater collaboration between European companies um, to enable them to grow and challenge some of the dominance of US firms. You know, that's not going away either. That That's relatively well entrenched. I, I suppose what you will just have as a hope is that there will be enough um, sort of building up of trust and goodwill that um, you won't see accidents or you won't see sort of unexpected surprises, which for any business is always the, the most troublesome element. How do you think that this paper would have been read in London, Tom. I mean, how, how does this how does this strategy sound to a UK outside of the EU? It's an interesting one. Um, the UK is currently in a bit of a period of reflection, to put it kindly, about its role in international relations and in its its role in the transatlantic relationship. Um, there will have been some elements that will be welcomed. So the text on climate change will look to the UK as though it is helping them make a success of their COP summit in the second half of next year, which is a key step in sort of re-establishing UK diplomatic activism. Um, that will have been welcomed. I'm sure there will be consideration going on about whether there is a possibility of widening that transatlantic technology council. Um, clearly, there are many US and European tech firms based in the UK. Um, but mostly, I think um, there will just be a, a period of the UK now thinking there may be some pressure on itself once the Brexit negotiations, one way or another, um, come, come to a conclusion over the next couple of weeks. It may be that there is then a bit more pressure to stake out some sort of foreign policy strategy, which on which actually the, the Prime Minister and the Foreign Secretary have been remarkably quiet. Um, I mean, I may miss it now being in Brussels, but there does not seem to have been the, the laying out of of a strategy for the next few years of this type coming from London for quite a while. No, I don't think you've missed anything. Miranda, a final process question. I mean, if this is a if this is an initial overture to the US, you make the observation that part of the challenge here is that the US is in fact not ready to engage on some of the substantive questions that the EU is raising. So when do we get a Biden administration that is ready to start engaging on these substantive questions? That's going to be a tough one, depending on the outcome of the Senate. Um, so I mentioned the two uh, Senate runoff races in Georgia, and those two races will determine whether Democrats or Republicans control the, the upper chamber. And I think the um, general view in the U.S. is that Republicans will maintain slim majority, but that really complicates efforts for Biden to um, appoint a cabinet and um, to Senate and folks to Senate confirmed positions. There's been lots of talk about how every pres president deserves a cabinet. He needs his advisors. But I do think that that's a looking at it with rose co colored glasses. Um, 
there's a lot of political angst within the Republican Party and they're against people that they perceive as progressive on the left and they're going to want to throw their weight around and so that could potentially complicate Biden appointing people in to key positions if you think of USTR that's usually one of the later appointments made and that person could not be confirmed potentially until April or May of 2021 and at that point you're also looking at um a deadline with the trade promotion authority expiring in July 1st. Um, and that's just on the trade front. I think writ large, you're likely not going to see the Biden administration be able to fully address something this comprehensive, um, you know, until about six months, the latter half of the first year of his administration. So the latter half of 2021, I think that the immediate priority is clearly going to be um, fixing uh, the U.S. response to the COVID-19 pandemic um, and dealing with the economic fallout. And that's been a consistent message from, from Biden world for, for months now. Okay, so this is the first steps in what sounds like it's going to be a fairly long geopolitical dance. Miranda, Tom, thank you both very much. As always, uh, GC has done a lot of work on this strategy and its hinterland and will continue to do so. Um, if you're interested in the implications of the ambitions set down in this paper for your business or your investment, don't hesitate to get in touch. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.